At a time when our conversations are as polarized as they've ever been, sound ideas and reasonable perspectives get lost in the shuffle. Well, we can't afford to lose our voice. I'm Chicago Urban League President and CEO Sherry Runner. And if you aren't at the table, you're on the menu. Welcome to our conversations on culture, race, and equity. It's time you had a seat at the table. Pull up a chair. Your host, Domiti Pongo. I'm Domiti Pongo. And this week on Culture, Race, and Equity, we discuss public health with the Cook County Department of Public Health's Head of Operations, Dr. Terry Mason. He analyzes the root causes of many of the health issues we see in African-American communities. Following his interview, you'll hear from Samantha Olds-Fry, the Executive Director of the Illinois Association of Medicaid Health Plans. She discusses the state of the country's health care system. But first, Dr. Terry Mason. My name is Dr. Terry Mason. I'm the Chief Operating Officer for the Cook County Department of Public Health. Well, first of all, let's be clear about what we mean when we say public health, Mm -hmm. because it's a term that gets used a lot, but it's misused even more. Okay. So public health has more to do with the conditions under which people live, work, and play. It has very little to do with hospitals or medical care. So I, I like to make the distinction between public health mm-hmm. and public medicine. Public medicine would be clinics, doctors, nurses, hospitals, extended care facilities, so on and so forth. So when we talk about public health, we really need to talk about those things, which we call the social determinants of health, which really have far more to do with your health outcome than whether you get to a healthcare institution. And so what are social determinants of health? These are, these are the conditions that govern where you work, live, and play. So the neighborhood you live in, the kinds of things available in your neighborhood, the, kinds of, the kind of job that you have, the amount of education that you have, the kind of opportunities that are afforded you and your, your children. For example, we have maps that I could share with you that looks at what's called the Childhood Opportunity Index mm-hmm. that talks about what kind of opportunities based on the quality of education and other factors in the community that are going to determine the trajectory for your child. Because if you don't have good educational opportunities in your neighborhood, then that's going to determine where your child is going to be able, or if they'll be able to go on to pursue higher education, and if so, to where the, that's going to be. And that will have a big determinant on whether they get into a medical school or a nursing school or a professional school. Mm. So those are the things that we look at, because we look at the major determinant of your life expectancy is your zip code, not your genetic code. Mm. Break that down. Why is that? Well, first of all, uh, and I can tell you, you've heard the term food desert. Mm-hmm. And food desert comes using the, the, the noun, sorry, using the noun desert, which means the absence of vegetation. And in this case of a food desert, absence of grocery stores that sell fresh, fresh fruits and vegetables. Okay? Mm-hmm. But in that paper that talked about the food desert, they looked at the word desert in two ways. Desert as a noun, which is what we all use but also desert as a verb. And so you don't get food deserts until the community is deserted. And deserted communities where we see the the economic lifeblood draining out of the communities, automobile dealerships, grocery stores, shopping malls, all those things leaving Mm -hmm. those communities, Uh, and, and housing and manufacturing sites for people to get jobs and easy access to those jobs. When those sort of things begin to leave a community for whatever and those communities become deserted, 
then those are the communities that we see that are going to have lower life expectancy because those are going to be now opportunities for crime and other kinds of activity to come in that are going to create bad schools, which will lead to bad opportunities. It's going to create unsafe environments. It's going to increase the likelihood that there's going to be more stress. More stress is going to lead to complications of some of the diseases we'll get to in a minute. Mm-hmm. But those are the kinds of things that we look at. Poor transportation nodes. In other words, being able to move around easily even to get two jobs. The lack of jobs. All of these things are things that make communities un... How can I say it? These are all things that make communities more difficult for people to live the kind of lives that they want to give. Just give me an example. If you are afraid to go out of your house and walk down the street, when you walk out the door, your brain automatically senses that fear. It begins to release another a chemical called cortisol, which raises your blood pressure, which is a, a normal response for making sure you're able to run or fight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if you have that all the time, if you live in that all the time, then it never gets turned off. They looked at blood pressures of black people and white people, black people in communities like the ones I just described, where at night the normal blood pressure for everybody goes down because you're able to sleep and relax. But when you have had to listen to gunshots or violence of any kind or in a any kind of disharmony that exists in your neighborhood where you never really can shut down and relax, that puts a constant strain not only on your heart and your blood pressure but on your immune system and everything. And so that's part of the reasons we see, along with lack of access and other things, why people living in these communities don't live as long and don't do as well. We see black people at the bottom of almost every health marker you can think of. We, the highest in this type of cancer, the highest in this issue, blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you talked about some statistics even off mic before we jumped on. Can you lay it out a bit? Uh, sure. We talked about, actually on the show today, we talked about what was the number one reason why black people don't live to be 60 years old, why a black teenager is 16 years old. What is the number one reason why a black teenager would not live to be 60 years old. Mm-hmm. And the number reason, number one reason is not violence. It's heart disease. Mm-hmm. That's the number one reason. And if we look at the leading health indicators that you just mentioned, African-American men are at the top. We have the, even though everybody's cancer rates have gone down, death rates for black men in cancer are still higher than everyone else's. Mm-hmm. Death rates from heart disease, higher than everyone else's death rates from all of these chronic diseases are higher than everyone else's. So you may ask the question, well, why is that so? Yeah. So the, the thing that I always like to do is you got to take a step back to understand how we got here. So black men in particular have been under assault since the landing here in 1619 and even before. Mm-hmm. So if you look at very quickly, if you look at what's happened to black people in America so, and I, I won't go back all the way, but in 1865, the so-called Declar- Declaration of Independence was signed. But at that point in, our, in our, our history, we were still considered subclass citizens. Oh, yeah. And they in- instituted all kinds of 
other laws, but I can go back 100 years before that with the Declaration of Independence. With the signing of the Declaration of Independence in 1776, black people were still considered property. The Declaration of Independence had absolutely nothing to do with black people. Nothing. Which is why I'm surprised we support, we, we even celebrate it because we did not get freedom to almost 100 years after that. But it wasn't until almost 100 years after that that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed that gave us the right to have the right to be able to go into public buildings, mm-hmm. public hospitals. Here in the city of Chicago, black women could not deliver their babies in all the hospitals here in the city. That wasn't possible. Basically, black people were limited to a few hospitals. Many of them are own black hospitals, but we have a Provident and, of course, Cook County Hospital. But this is what we forget. And we forget the fact that we only got the right to go in public buildings since 1964. So how could our health outcomes be as good as people who've had health outcomes that, were, that, that antedate that by hundreds of years? Why should we expect that, that? Why should we expect there to be anything different than what we see? And when we look at the Institute of Medicine's report on unequal treatment, even though to, even to the, today, and they wrote a great report talking about the difference in the kinds of treatments black people were offered versus what whites were offered. When blacks were offered, uh, how often blacks were offered limb salvage? That is, if you have poor circulation in the leg, if you were black, you're more likely to have that leg cut off than you were if you were white, where they may attempt a salvage procedure to, to try and bring new blood by way of an operation into that leg. Black men have been under assault. If we think about what happened, there was this whole notion about the crack epidemic. It was bogus. There was no crack problem that was creating a whole nation of babies that were going to be crack addicted and therefore cost billions of dollars. The doctor at Northwestern University, and you can YouTube it for yourself, that was what he was describing was just prematurity. It wasn't anything about the crack. I'm not saying crack didn't have any effect, but what I'm saying is that during that time, incarceration rates because of the three strikes you're out and all these other things that happened increased incarceration rates tremendously. Black men represent, you know, 20, black and Hispanic men represent over 26 percent. I'm sorry, over 30 percent of the people who are incarcerated. But we our our concentration in the population is far lower than that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We have the statistics say that at the current rates, one in three black men will end up in incarceration or part of that whole criminal justice system, whether it's incarceration um, on, on some sort of release program or something like that, while these jails are getting paid based on occupancy. In and fact, now there are more black people in jail than there were slaves in 1865. Well, that may be true, but I'm just saying to you, but the thing yeah. is that the jails are the new slavery. Michelle yes. Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, yes. if you look at there are more people em- employed in jail than there are in all the Fortune 500 companies with the exception of maybe General Motors. Mm -hmm. And they're doing jobs in jail that they can't do when they get out of jail. Mm -hmm. And they're being paid somewhere between 58 cents a day to maybe uh, a few dollars a day. And so it is the new, and there are many companies that are doing business with 
the jails. I mean, people in jail are making reservations in call centers. They're using, they're using or making textiles for body armor. They're making shoes. They're making, putting together furniture. They're doing jobs that they can't even get when they get out. And the fact of the matter is, even after you've paid your debt to society, even after that, you're still not free. Because once you have a record now, you are locked out of all of the many, many rights, many places you can't even vote. So what good did it do to spend 25 years in jail when you come out and you still cannot reengage as a real free citizen? Yeah. When we want to go back and look at the number one killer of people in America uh, is what we call cardiovascular disease. Well, what does that mean? Well, what is cardiovascular disease? Cardiovascular disease is what we commonly know as a heart attack, okay? Well, what is a heart attack? Well, a heart attack is because the blood that, has to, that supplies the heart, the heart has to beat. The only time the heart beats is in between beats. That's only, I'm sorry. The only time the heart rests is in between beats. Because if it stops, you die. Mm-hmm. So what happens is the, the heart needs blood in order to, continue to do what it needs to do. So the blood vessels that supply the heart, so that the muscle, because the heart's just a muscle, in order to get the energy that it needs to beat, has to come from the blood. Well, where does the blood get it from? Well, when we eat, the food things, the things that we eat, are, we go in our mouth, they get digested, go in our digestive system, into our stomach, into our small intestine, and they are the nutrients are absorbed. Those, those nutrients get absorbed and go into our bloodstream. But there are other things that, that are part of that stuff that we eat that get absorbed and go into our bloodstream. We've all heard of cholesterol. If you looked at cholesterol, as a spiky-looking kind of thing under the microscope. And this, this cholesterol, these bad fats, trans fats, some of the things that are, that, that are processed foods that we're, much of what we're eating, create an inflammation. In other words, it causes an injury to the blood vessels everywhere in the body, not just in the heart, everywhere, because the blood goes everywhere to every artery, every vein in the body. So what happens is if it causes irritation and inflammation anywhere, causing it everywhere, that means every blood vessel in our body is damaged by the foods that we're eating that cause the inflammation. That inflammation because the heart is beating many, many times uh, a minute, it needs that blood in an uninterrupted sort of way. So as these things that we're eating are causing injury to the blood vessel, the blood vessel is trying to heal itself. When it heals itself, it does the same thing on the inside as it does on the outside. It creates a scab so that the healing can take place underneath. But what do we do? We keep like taking the scab off because we keep injuring the blood vessel even when it's trying to heal. And that process creates, at some point, the blood vessel becomes blocked Mm -hmm. and the blood can't flow. And when that happens on the heart, we call it a heart attack. When it happens in our brain, we call it a stroke. When it happens to the blood circulating to our leg, we call it peripheral vascular disease. It's not all of that. It's food. It's the stuff we're eating. And when we look at our people, black people, it's not anything genetic. It's the way we eat is passed down from generation to generation. And unfortunately, we see our numbers going down a bit because 
we're not eating the way we used to eat. I mean, we used to eat lots of vegetables. I mean, and we didn't eat a lot. We weren't obese. Obesity is a dietary disease. It's not some standalone disease. You don't get fat until you take in more calories than you need. And when you're taking in calories that are hyper-concentrated like they are in high fructose corn syrup or in these processed foods that we eat or in all these sugary beverage drink, uh, sugary beverages that we drink or these sugar-coated cereals that we eat, cereals that are created to help us use milk, which is another thing we don't need because black people, many of us don't even have the enzyme to break down the sugar in the milk, lactose. So all of these things, there's nothing wrong with us. This whole notion that, yes, we have more cancer, yes, we have more, but it's not because there's anything genetically wrong with us. What's wrong with us is what we eat and the conditions under which we live, which create the stress that the food that we're eating, which is causing those damage, is, is that damage is exaggerated by this whole notion of the food causing the damage to the inside of our blood vessels. Mm. That's what it is. Given all of this, how do we combat it from two ways? Because you have a generation, my generation and younger, who uh, we can start to change and manipulate health habits and, and, and such. But then you have a generation before us that's already experiencing some of these diseases that you're talking about, have already had strokes and already suffered from cardiovascular disease. And how do we address this problem facing our community that feels so massive and requires different levels of attention to different generations and different stages of diseases that they might be going through. How do we combat it? Well, the good news is that the solution is simple. We just have to stop doing what we're doing mm. and start eating food, more food that comes out of the ground than foods that walk on it, slither on it, swim in it, or fly over it. That's the solution. It's just that simple. Mm. And we have to eat real food, not made-up food. Because one of the big problems now facing what's going on in medicine is drug-resistant bacteria. And part of the reason why we have almost no antibiotics to fight certain germs anymore is because we give our livestock, chickens, pork, I mean pigs, cows, we mix the antibiotics in with the feed to give them. So what's happening is they're breeding resistant organisms because bugs are smart. They say, oh, that's going to kill me. We'll change the way we make ourselves. And so now we will be resistant to these antibiotics. Mm. And that's what's happening now. You look up and look at the kind of drug resistance we're seeing. And I just saw an article that it is because of the antibiotics that are being used in our food system, not to mention the non-judicious use of antibiotics. Everybody gets a cold, wants to go get antibiotics, but most of the time you don't need antibiotics uh, because it's a virus, and antibiotics are not going to do anything against the virus anyway. So if you get a cold, unless you get a real bad secondary infection of some sort, you have to be careful because every time you take the antibiotics, you, it's like when I was growing Your up. Your body becomes more immune to it. It saying? becomes more immune to it. It's like roaches. Right. We had a lot of roaches when I was growing up. You used to spray Raid, and Raid would kill the roaches. But eventually there came a generation <laughs> of roaches that were immune to the raid yeah. because organisms adapt. And so these are many things that need to be fleshed out far more in subsequent conversation. But he says we can show value to ourselves by taking better care of what we eat, eating food that comes out of the ground and doesn't swim under it, walk on it, 
or trample over it. So I thank you, Dr. Terry Mason, for taking a seat at the table. He, of course, is the Chief Operating Officer of the Cook County uh, Department of Public Health. So thank you again for, You're uh, quite for joining us. You're quite welcome. I'm going to Thank you. Samantha Olds Fry was unable to join us in studio, but she was able to join us via phone. Now, you will hear some static in the beginning of this interview, but the call quality does improve as the interview continues. The information was far too good to let this opportunity pass. Now, our conversation with Samantha Olds Fry. Talking to Samantha Olds Fry, she is the executive director of the Illinois Association of Medicaid Health Plans, also one of Forbes 30 under 30 honorees in 2015. And uh, the Illinois Association of Medicaid Health Plans is a membership organization of health plans that participate in Medicaid managed care in Illinois. And again, thank you for taking the time, Sam. I really appreciate it. Let's start all the way from the beginning. Can we talk about the history of the Medicaid program, how it came about, and kind of the history of health care in this country in, in a way that has become the hot button issue that it is today? How do we get here, so to speak? Yeah, so great question. Um, so Medicaid has often really just been misunderstood and, and in my mind really mischaracterized as a program mostly for um, poor people. But in fact, while there is an income threshold, Medicaid tends to cover uh, the, the largest insurer for disabled, it's the largest insurer for the elderly, uh, the number one payer for long-term care services in the country. Uh, it's also the number one payer for uh, mental health and behavioral health services in the country, and it serves a ton of children. Um, you know, in Illinois alone, one out of two births is covered by the Medicaid program. So Medicaid is really one of these programs that impacts every single family across the United States and across uh, the state. However, it's become recently, in my mind, really politicized um, and, and almost put sort of in the spotlight and seen as though it, it isn't that program that impacts everybody, that it isn't that program that really lifts up and supports our healthcare system uh, for everybody. And it's sort of seen as a program for, for other people, whomever those people are, um, and that's that's a real tragedy to just m- have such a significant misunderstanding of what Medicaid does and how crucial it is to the safety net of our uh, society. No, it's interesting. It's a great point that you make about what Medicaid customers uh, are perceived to be and what, what we think of them and how we think they look and, and who we think they are. Uh, what effect do you think that has in how resources are doled out then to those communities and how legislation takes hold? You know, I think it has a significant impact. What was really interesting in Illinois, when we were trying to expand uh, Medicaid uh, as authorized under the Affordable Care Act, we had partners who polled um, how many people would gain coverage because of Medicaid expansion by legislative districts. And it really shocked people that the districts that were going to see the biggest improvement in access and coverage were not districts necessarily in Chicago, but were rural districts across the state. Um, And that really, you know, Medicaid serves people everywhere. It doesn't, you know, it's not a Democrat program or or a Republican program. It, It really serves in every single district, and everybody is impacted by that. And it was really eye-opening to just see how many lives 
benefit because of this program. Um, but even though it does uh, impact every, you know, every community, we do see that the legislative champions um, for the program do tend to come, um, you know, out of the African-American and Latino legislative caucuses. Uh, so, you know, we're very thankful for their advocacy, but it is a program that uh, is relied upon by every community and every, you know, every hospital, every clinic across the state relies on the Medicaid program. Yeah, it definitely does fall along racial lines, but also uh, among, as you talked about, uh, partisan lines. And with the Affordable Care Act um, in jeopardy right now, what would a GOP health care plan look like? And what is the state of a program like Medicaid in the coming years, given the, the state of the government right now? Gosh, such a fabulous question. And, and one with so many complicated answers because nobody knows, right? The second we think we know, um, the world sort of shifts and the ground beneath us continues to change. And that is very concerning to me. Healthcare has been an ever-evolving program and system for years and we need some stability in order to make the strides we really need to make. Um, you know, the Medicaid program in Illinois is, is reforming and we're hoping to focus more on Medicaid members and more on quality and the outcomes and access, but it's hard to invest in that when you don't even know what the program will look like tomorrow. I mean, there are over, uh, you know, potentially 700,000 people who could lose access, 700,000 people today in the state of Illinois who could lose access to their health care if some of the GOP ideas um, were to come into play. And so that is, that is concerning. You know, the idea of rolling back Medicaid expansion is just unfathomable to me. There's no easy way to do it because it has become, especially in a state like Illinois, um, a crucial safety net component, but also an economic driver. You know, people don't realize this, that even if you and no one in your family are on Medicaid, you are impacted by the Medicaid program and the strength or the weakness of it. On average, health insurance premiums for a family of four are, in, you pay an extra $1,000 uh, a year because Medicaid has such low reimbursement rates that medical providers cost shifts in commercial insurance. If people have less access to care, whether it be through Medicaid or through the marketplace, the cost shifting is going to increase. You get sick as a human being whether or not you have health coverage. You know, it's not like the flu asks you if you can afford to go to the doctor before you get infected. You still are impacted by um, whether it be the flu, whether it be chronic diseases, and at times more so. Um, depending on the areas you live in, what access you have to healthy foods, the air you're breathing. And so the idea that we can really live in a bubble and that the strength of Medicaid um, is irrelevant, it, it, it's just it's not logical. You know, Medicaid is a driver of our overall population health and public health in the state. People miss, especially African-American and Latino families, um, we find that they miss... Uh, doctor's appointments for either they're worried about costs or they're worried about getting to the doctor's office. And they don't realize that there are those resources out there that can help them get both to and from their doctor's office to a pharmacy. Um, and so, you know, if you are on Medicaid and you're enrolled in a health plan, 
look at the back of your card. There's a transportation number there, and that is a resource for you that we think is really underutilized. Oh, wow. What can people do to to uh, fight for their programs that might be in danger and, and the resources you talked about to make sure that these programs are protected, you know, what, what is the best way that communities can rally behind what groups like yours are, are doing? Yes, absolutely. Call your legislator, be engaged. Um, you know, I think in this atmosphere, it's so easy to focus on all that is going on nationally and it's so easy to get sucked into that. But we have to remember that Medicaid is a state and federal partnership. And so there's a lot of say um, in how what this program looks like in the state of Illinois. Um, and so don't only engage your federal um, legislators, but also engage your state legislators. Also call the governor. Make sure that everybody knows that you believe that Medicaid is an important and, and crucial component of the social safety net and of the Illinois economy and what it means for families. You know, I think it's a program that every once in a while we focus on what it means for providers, what it means for health plans. But what we, what is often overlooked is this is a program that serves 3 million people. You know, it covers everybody from, you know, the elderly in nursing homes to infants uh, to everybody in between. And it's important that it's there for you should you ever need it. Samantha Oates-Fry is the executive director of the Illinois Association of Medicaid Health Plans. Again, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us on uh, Culture, Race, and Equity. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much and have a fabulous day and, and truly thank you for everything you do. Thank you for checking out a segment from our 10-part series, Culture, Race, and Equity, A Seat at the Table. We invite you to view our show notes at culpodcast.com. And please don't forget to rate us and leave your comments on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To stay in touch and find out how you can support the League, visit our website at thechicagourbanleague.org. I'm President and CEO Sherry Runner. See you next Monday.